Strauss once stated correctly that the life of a pastor is and has to be both the most public and the loneliest. In the right alternation between loneliness and being in the public, according to Thomas Akempis, there is not only a wholesome measure for every Christian, but it is especially a secret of the often miraculous effect when a pastor appears. The office does not permit one always to live quietly and withdrawn. It makes the pastor the center, the rallying point of the congregation. At every official act, and in fulfilling his duties, it puts him in the center of the congregation. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zelwyn Heidi. Joining us today, the Reverend Adam Kuntz, continuing our discussion on Wilhelm Leia's The Pastor. Gentlemen, how are you? Really good. How are you? I am, I am well. Uh, how is the weather out in Pennsylvania? It's extremely nice. I have no complaints whatsoever. <laughs> well, that's good. Contentment is a... The, the rare jewel of Christian contentment is being displayed here on uh, Word Fitly Spoken. Zelwyn, what is the ice depth in North Dakota right now? Oh, you know, three feet and dropping. You know, I thought of you this week. I learned that the polar bear is the largest of all bears. And for some reason, my mind went to you. <laughs> so there we go. The things you know when you've got young ch- children in the house. So. We're not quite that far north, but no, things have been kind of cool lately. And so I've got some of the cool weather crops in the ground and hoping everything will come up just nicely, but waiting to put in tomatoes because it's still just a little too cold for them. So, yeah, it is. It's a meme that has legs, but it is what it is. (laughs) Sure, sure. We've had some good summer days, although it's been very rainy here, so the farmers are a little bit antsy, the commercial farmers. We managed to get our home garden in, I think, for the most part. So we'll, we'll see how that goes and continue to pray for seasonable weather. Well, we've come here to continue this discussion. A couple of episodes ago, we talked about Leah's perspective on the pastor's private life. But a pastor's private life feeds into the public, his public conduct, his public, well, his public life, for lack of a better term. So that's what we've come here to discuss. Now, Leah really details this quite well in the book, so we will admonish you to go find that section in the book and, and read it. Time doesn't permit us to to talk about every little thing that he mentions, but... We're going to look at some of the highlights, go through it, see what Leia has to tell us today. So, gentlemen, what is the pastor's public life? It's a little bit of a confusing term, I think, in English, because public life usually means something like politics or maybe business or public advocacy of some kind. But by it, Leia means everything that can be seen by another human being. So whereas the the hidden life or private life is everything that can be seen only by God, the public life is everything that is observable to other people. So it could be something that in the common meaning of the term private life, we might actually say like your way of being with your children or your way of being with your wife. That's your private life. For Leah, that's public. So hidden life is everything seen by God and and public life is everything seen by men. That means that he's covering a much more extensive area, I think, than just, well, how does the pastor relate to state authorities or something like that? 
I, I did note in the in the intros that Leia talks about a lot of subjects that are a little bit arcane or dated by now, but he discusses the glebe, which is the farm attaching to many rural parishes. And the listeners should know that Zelwyn actually has one of those, which is why he has <laughs> all of these discussions about his crops and such, because Zelwyn is actually <laughs> the only person who who still has a glebe attached to his church. Of my own making. But yeah, yes. right. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah, I, I did find that many of Leia's specific topics, like you say, are not something that we would find maybe a direct relevance for. Right. But I do find that his general statements are quite helpful. And I think that's kind of what we're getting at here, talking about what does it mean to be seen by man and how do we act in front of them, you know, so that we're not bringing disrepute upon the office. Yeah, this is the proverbial fishbowl that we hear about all the time, right? The pastor lives in a fishbowl, meaning everyone is watching him. And some pastors bristle at that, thinking it's unfair, but nevertheless, that is the life. It's not as if people are always watching you to stand in judgment over you, but the pastor does stand as an example to the congregation. Yeah, and Leah doesn't really discuss whether or not that could not be the case. I mean, he discusses being exemplary or being in the center of all the congregation's activities as simply a matter of course, such that the only thing that you can really control is what kind of example you are. You really don't have control over the fact that you are an example as the pastor. So, because I think I think sometimes when we talk about fishbowl, I understand how that could be avoided in the sense that there are parishes that are much less socially intensive than others, right? I mean, my my parish is suburban, and my people come from an hour in some directions. They don't really know each other outside of church. A lot of them, and and some of them don't know each other, right? That's much less intensive than a rural parish, which is, you know, five or six extended families. So I understand that the fishbowl could, you know, some uh, some of us are living in, you know, the National Aquarium and some of us are living in a little bowl <laughs> that sits on top of your daughter's dresser. You know, I mean, it's, I, I understand that, but the idea of being exemplary isn't really optional, regardless of how big your parish is or, or how well the people know each other or you. Certainly, certainly. Yeah, and it's amazing what we would try to debate today regarding whether or not the pastor, the pastor's example, where Leia simply assumes what the right. Bible teaches. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so what is the source of the pastor's public life then? It has to stem from something, right? So out of the heart, where does it begin? Where is the, the root of the pastor's public life? Leia does not draw the public life or its or its norms or or any of the advice that he gives in the section you know on on subjects from how to deal with beggars unknown to you versus beggars whom you are already acquainted with all these kind of different little subjects all of this comes out of his basic discussion earlier on in the book about the pastor as founded upon a kind of wellspring of energy and joy which causes him to behave in certain ways that are in accord with Christ. And that is that is what Leah calls the hidden life. So he says that the public life, one's capacity to act in God-pleasing ways, to speak truthfully, to maintain people's trust, but not to entrust oneself too much to other people, 
something I think maybe we can discuss is the hidden life. And the hidden life has for him primarily three components, prayer, a good conscience, and then what he calls most frequently meditation, which is just meditation on Holy Scripture. Sure. Well, let's take them one at a time then. We've talked about prayer a lot in previous episodes, but let's briefly touch on it again. What is what does Leah expect of the pastor's prayer life? He expects a constancy in prayer, and he brings up several examples, one of which is a in his own time <laughs> what what you might now think of like as an, an internet celebrity pastor. Martin Bos was a was a kind of celebrity of of, of a sort in nineteenth century Germany as um, a parish pastor. And Bos describes at some length and Leah quotes him as praying fervently behind the altar of his church in the sacristy or, or something like that. And he's just kind of pouring out his heart to God. And then he would do the same in taking walks in the Alps. He would lie down, he says, under uh, on every rock and under every tree along the path, pouring himself out. I, it's It's a picture of constancy and fervency in prayer. It's not necessarily what you might call liturgical prayer, although Leah commends that as well and bemoans the lack of what he calls an evangelical breviary. But what he seems generally to mean is what you might call free prayer or extempore prayer concerning the parish, concerning especially one's own shortcomings, because he he recognizes that the more one is in prayer, the easier it is to recognize one's failings, one's uh, the, the vices that easily cause arrogance, anything like that. So it's a constancy in free prayer that is going to give voice to the things that both commend the parish and oneself to the Lord, and also bring great humility in the prayer. All right, well said. We're going to skip over good conscience for now and move on to meditation. We've gone from one to three. So let's talk about lay and meditation. What does he mean by that? He means sustained attention to a particular section of Scripture. Before he discusses that, and he gives an outline from Calvur's Ladder of Devotion, which you can find if you pick up the book, he also mentions what was called cursory reading, which is just reading large portions of Scripture at once. This is something I know we've talked about a lot on Word Fitly Spoken. But it, it's interesting to see in, in, the, in the 19th century that Leah is kind of touchy about this because you can tell that he's talked about it before and people have not reacted well. So he says that basically people that object to the cursory reading of Scripture uh, probably have never tried it and therefore think it to be too difficult. And then he asks kind of rhetorically, like, are you serious? You, you actually think like if I set out to read the whole Bible in some set period of time, let's say a year, that's somehow going to be harmful to me spiritually. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it was fascinating. It's fascinating to read that uh, it, it was debated among pastors close to 200 years ago, whether or not we should be reading the Bible. And, and maybe there's such a thing as too much Bible reading. <laughs> if only Leah had seen, you know, Facebook discussion groups, I'm sure he would have been thoroughly convinced of, of their perspective. <laughs> well, as, as most people are through Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So then that brings us to this other point of a good conscience. Now, that's a term that's a good term, but and if we're not reading the Bible, we might not, we might actually forget it. Uh, we don't use it as much. Uh, what is a good conscience? 
A good conscience is able to say, I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted, right? So I think sometimes when conscience is discussed, to say that one actually possesses a good conscience can sound proud or, or arrogant or maybe even deluded because we understand that the conscience is informed by God's will and that one is always aware of some shortcoming or other if you're not spiritually blind. But a good conscience is a conscience that trusting in Christ for salvation also carries out one's duties in the fear of God and therefore goes to sleep each day being able to live with what you have done that day, right? I mean, if I if I spend my day carrying out my duties as a pastor, you know, I, I change a diaper or two, read a Bible story to my kids, I talk to my wife before we go to bed. I don't I don't feel bad about that, you know? I mean, I, <laughs> I don't I don't I don't go to sleep thinking, boy, I, I'm just the same as a serial killer, you know? It it's not <laughs> it's not where I'm at, right? And I think if you look in scripture, you you can see that especially Paul in the New Testament is clearest because the language is clearest there. But you can see people carrying out their lives with a good conscience. I mean, it's it's the claim that, for instance, Samuel makes at the end of his ministry when he asks the Israelites rhetorically, you know, have I taken anything from you? Have I received any bribes, right? He's contrasting himself with the conduct not only of Eli, his predecessor, and Eli's sons, but also with Samuel's own sons, right? It is possible to carry out one's life and especially one's ministry with a good conscience. I think one of the reasons why we struggle with this nowadays is for some reason we have conflated blamelessness and sinlessness. Yeah, that's good. Mm-hmm. You know, because we we think that if if we're going to have a blameless conscience before God, that means that I have to be absolutely perfect. But then what do you do with passages like Enoch being blameless in his generation or Noah being blameless or Job being blameless? Right. I mean, the scriptures themselves speak about this good conscience. I mean, it's it's again, and this is really tied to back to meditation, back to prayer. If you're meditating on Scripture, you're going to learn the words of Scripture. And as you're praying, those words are going to come to mind, but prayer also disciplines the body and disciplines us spiritually as well to both receive and to understand the things of God. So if we don't have meditation upon the Word, and if we don't have sincere Christian prayer, we've no hope for a good conscience because our conscience will be largely uninformed. Or our conscience will be informed, but by bad sources. So you'll come up with the idea that a good conscience means being only f- means being free in Christ, which, you know, if I put a period on the end of that sentence, yeah, it sounds pretty good. But then it can become, well, then I must ape whatever else out there that the cool kids are doing. I have to just appear degenerate because I recognize that I'm a fallen man who has been redeemed. You know, these sorts of things. So it's like Adam uses these wholesome illustrations about family life and just the simple tranquility of the Christian home. And many have conflated the liberation of the conscience with freedom to just do stupid and harmful things for the sake of image or for the sake of some kind of signaling, right? Do you guys understand what I'm kind of grasping at here? Not grasping at here, but explaining here? <laughs> well, yeah, I think we're going we're gonna to talk about social media a little bit later on in the episode. So stay tuned. Please consume all of this product. 
Yeah, no 80% listeners, okay? We want 100% listeners here at a word fitly spoken. Yeah, we gotta, we got to up our iTunes stats. <laughs> the producer is is hot on our heels about this. and uh, We're going to lose sponsors. Yeah, there, there's, yeah there's, exactly. a reason, there's a reason I haven't been on the podcast in a while, and it has to do with my stats. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> You need to get your batting average up. Mankato, brother. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was down in the minors for a while or whatever, but here I am. <laughs> is that social media induces in people stuff that non-Christians know about, fear of missing out, a reliance on dopamine releases in the brain to feel that something is interesting or rewarding or whatever. A good conscience is much more robust than that, and it's not conditioned by such short-term activities. I mean, a, a good conscience concerning raising my children is not about you know loving every single minute of you know changing diapers or disciplining children or making sure that they don't, you know, fall into the pool, the ones that can't swim. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not, it's not about every single moment being absolutely amazing. And then I can, you know, post about that and get people to care and enjoy and love what I'm doing. So I, I think that when we're talking about a good conscience, we're talking about something that is both satisfied with the things of God and therefore satisfied with the life that you've been given by God at that moment. It's also something that is robust because it's not led astray or diluted by temporary offers of this feels good or this looks good or whatever it may be. I, I think the word that you used, Willie, was tranquility to describe the home. I think that's also the nature of a Christian conscience, which is resting on Christ. I mean, I really I don't I don't need to prove anything to the world on social media or anywhere else because I have I have Christ. So I, I can have a good conscience. I don't, I don't need other things to validate my life other than him and his word. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. It's very much an Ecclesiastes posting going on right now. Well, great stuff, guys. We got more coming up right after the break. The word of the Lord says, Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. You can check out all of the Word Fitly Spoken podcasts on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcast app. We'll be right back. We are back. You are listening to Word Fitly, Willie Grills, Zelwyn Heidi, Adam Kuntz talking Wilhelm Leia and the pastor's public life. Now, we talked about some disciplines like prayer, meditation, leading towards a good conscience. All of that teaches us that the pastor's life is an ordered life. Would you agree? Yeah, and Leia sees this as a reflection in one's life of the order of the God whom the pastor proclaims. 
So because according to St. Paul, our God is a God of order, our lives also have a certain order to them. And I think that this cuts in two different directions. One is just the fairly obvious point that God's creation is in and of itself ordered. There are men and there are women, there are families, all this kind of thing, right? There's an order to creation. Orders of creation is a way that Lutherans have often spoken about this, different orders of creation or, or sometimes realms or estates. But it also cuts in the direction of intentionality, that when we're thinking about our own lives, adopting patterns of order, which could be, you know, stigmatized as overly precise or whatever, but adopting patterns of order in how you organize space, how you dress, and especially as we're going to talk about how you pattern your day, day by day, is going to be best for you because you were actually created to reflect some kind of order such that when your life is disorderly, when you don't know what's going to happen next, or you don't know what you're going to do next, or you don't know what you're going to need to know next, that creates tons and tons of a word that Leia doesn't use, but could have used in this case, which is stress. You know, a little stress is good for you. It challenges you, but constant, the constant stress of disorder is needless. And Leia mentions it, and this sounds kind of mundane, but I guess I want to start here. When he's talking about what we would call administration, and he talks about keeping good records as a pastor, that you should you should have records of not only official acts, that's pretty obvious, when and whom did you baptize, that kind of thing, but also records of things like pastoral conversations, records of your own work patterns. Those records, if you set them up at the beginning of your ministry or your beginning of your time in a, in a specific call, can be massively helpful to you. If you wait to organize things or you never really do organize them, you could spend an entire day doing something that would have taken you a half hour if you had gotten your stuff together you know, months right. earlier. And it's always good to be invested in files. Today, that's made even easier for us with all of the digital record keeping and things like that. So maintain your files, folks. Seems fairly fairly simple. Don't let things pile up. Keep things clutter-free as you can, and you know, always be recording. <laughs> right. So the notion of order here, things like, you know, cleaning your desk, having your stuff in order, keeping a journal with notes of what you're gonna do, to-do lists, schedules. All of that is simply helpful stuff that's going to keep your life as low stress as possible. The more, let's say, profound side to that is the notion of having a constant pattern to your day. And this is something that came up, I don't know, a million years ago when we first started recording. And we were talking about Gerberding's The Lutheran Pastor. And Gerberding had this pattern for the day that Leia also recommends. And that is that in the morning, the pastor is imbibing, he's studying, he's learning. And in the afternoon, he is visiting, he's among the people. They don't, neither of them really talks a whole lot about nighttime meetings. And that's probably a, a difference in time and, and the way people organize their lives. Yeah, the days before electric lights, you know. Yeah, too, right, right, right. But that, that basic pattern of study in the morning, visitation, pastoral care in the afternoon is something that you see in a variety of different authorities. And I think the reason for that is that 
it gives you a great balance between taking and giving. Because I think in the pastor's life, the, the tendency is usually to give too much, at which point you run dry. And it's, it's something, I mean, I've, I've, I've heard it very sadly in the adult children of pastors saying that, you know, my dad was, he was a great dad to everybody in the church except me. You know, he was married to the church, not my mother. You know, I mean, I'm, th- these are verbatim from people I've talked to. Because the pastor is giving and giving and giving and giving of himself and his time. And that's understandable. But there's also a time for taking for oneself, both taking time for one's family, but also taking time for one's study. And, and Leia says that the one who's always giving must himself receive. Well, if, if you're talking about ordering your time and also ordering your, your morning so that you're, as you say, imbibing or you know, taking in, should there be structure to how we study as well? I mean, what is what does that look like? How does Leia describe that? Oh yeah, that's good. He de- you know he doesn't really talk about structure. I think beyond the notion of having both cursory reading of scripture, reading big portions of scripture, presumably in the vernacular at one time, and then also what he calls exegetical study of scripture, which is usually for a parish pastor devoted to things like sermon preparation, Bible class preparation, catechism preparation. I think I think a structured plan for anybody is probably best. I know that, you know, Zelwin at one time did a lot of study on Egypt. I think that kind of setting goals for yourself, you know, working off, let's say, you get a you get a solid introductory resource on something like Egypt or systematic theology or the Reformation, whatever your interest is. And then you go from that bibliography and you highlight, let's say, five or 10 other things. And then you go about acquiring those things and learning those. That can be super helpful. I mean, I know a lot of people did this a couple of years ago with the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. There were not only a lot of books coming out about the Reformation and various reformers, but there were also a lot of people I know actually, you know, reading a Luther biography or reading a certain number of Luther's treatises and, you know, the different different seminary periodicals had, you know, different essays on this is a great way to read, you know, Luther's works or whatever it may be. That kind of structure is also helpful because then you don't kind of wander around from subject to subject haphazardly and, and you know, you know, approximately two things about everything. <laughs> well, I, I mean, you, you mentioned like the Egypt thing, and I, I can remember, you know, when you first start out in something with the introductory, yeah, it can be a, a quite intimidating because there's so much to take in. Right. But when you focus in the way, in that way, and especially, you know, repeating it continuously, it's amazing how much you're going to retain. Yep. And you're not going to be lost in the weeds after a while so that you could leave it even for a year or two and come back and be like, oh, okay, yeah, all of this stuff. And I think that when you're talking about something like, especially things that a lot of people, especially pastors probably should know more about, but don't. So I would say what what usually gets classified in universities as either Semitics, understandings right. of the ancient Near East, or classics, understanding of Greek and Latin civilization. Those things are immensely beneficial for understanding the worlds in which the Bible takes place. And a lot of pastors, especially today, have really no training in either of those things. I got a couple might have some classics background, but Semitics is quite rare and usually only studied at the graduate level. So reading around in the history of ancient Egypt or 
ancient Mesopotamia or the Roman Empire is going to benefit you in ways that you don't necessarily even anticipate because it's just going to make the Bible that much more vivid for you as you read it. I mean, everything that you're doing is going to surround understanding the Bible better. I, I think I think that probably goes without saying. Because, you know, you might you might hear something like this and say, like, well, you know, what about like other kinds of history? But I mean, undertaking something specific like Egypt or, you know, Sumer or, you know, even, you know, some of these more minute areas of the ancient mm-hmm. Near East is going to help me to be able to proclaim the Bible better. And I know that seems kind of, I don't know, almost counterintuitive to say, like, how does studying about the, the you know, the Sphinx or something going to help you understand the Bible? But when you understand the situation that like Abraham is in or that Joseph is in and where they're falling in Egyptian history and all the stuff kind of going on around them, then it helps you to proclaim that message all the clearer. And the same is true of Roman history. So, yeah, I do think that there is a great benefit in focusing in on studies in this way and actually disciplining yourself, even in something that seems a little bit more remote. And really, when you look at things like subjects like this, people will say, well, I don't know if that really interests me. But speaking to pastors, which is the subject, it really ought to interest you because it is informing you about the Word of God, which you are called to proclaim, as Ellen just said. Reading, study becomes a discipline. Okay, It can be enjoyable, but you have to have this regular structure, otherwise you're not going to do it. And you need to look at it as a deliberate task. I am reading this perhaps for recreation, but also with a purpose in mind, so that I may know better the Word of God, and as Zelwyn said, be better able to proclaim it. So it has to be a regular thing. We'll take work, though. We'll take effort on our side. Leia does mention what he d- discusses as hobbies, and under that, he's not so much talking about fixing cars or woodworking as he is about what are mainly intellectual interests. So he also presumes that the pastor will have mainly intellectual interests. That seems to be his assumption. Under that, however, he says, you know, that clergy have been great amateurs in nearly every field. He says that's, you know, that's not so bad. That's okay. It's okay to be very interested in, it could be cars or woodworking. It could be, you know, mineralogy. That's not bad, but he's very clear that if your hobby becomes what you you pretty much primarily think about or devote your brain power to, then you've got problems because although theology touches on everything, it has to remain both for the pastor and also by its own account, the queen of the sciences. So you should be devoting most of your brain power to understanding theology better if you're self-respecting. It's very possible, I think, to compartmentalize one's job, even if it is being a pastor, and one's discipline, even if it is theology, and just say, that's what I do when I'm at work. (laughs) But, right? I think that especially for a pastor, and especially with a subject that touches on potentially anything, and especially touches on any human being whom you encounter, if you're trying to compartmentalize theology you, you've really got a misunderstanding of what it is that you're about, because you're you're actually about this comprehensive discipline, this comprehensive way of life that you're commending to, to men. Well, imagine a neurosurgeon who would say, well, I'm not really going to read any medical journals discussing the brain, because ultimately every activity of man is produced by the brain. 
And then I'm just going to go hack on some, some skulls later, later on, you know, with my, cause it's my nine to five. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, continuing education, not necessarily in the sense of like getting more degrees or something, but continuing education in the sense of always learning about one's own discipline should be obvious for a pastor and that that learning obviously primarily comes out of the scriptures, but it also is informed by all the reading about preaching or doctrine or history or whatever it may be that is going to make you a better student of the Bible, a better preacher, a better pastor. So all that has to be included. I think that, you know, Leah, I mean, it, it is very comforting to me, like I said earlier with the stuff about Bible reading. It's comforting to read about indifference in Leah's time, because he's very aware that there are pastors who kind of just, they are pastors as a kind of job, but their real passion in life is, you know, collecting coins or whatever. (laughs) And, (laughs) And that's, you know, I mean, and that's what they devote most of their thought to, because there are just so many distractions and there were in the 19th century. But I think, I think today there are just so many distractions it is so easy to be the guy who only devotes a little bit of time each day actually to thinking about theology. When you're, I mean, you're just dealing with, and I think we're going to get into this in the last section. So, you know, stay tuned for that as well. When you're dealing with the, the distractions of the modern technological scene and the immediacy that it demands, I think it is very easy to major in the minors, as it were, and to become distracted by the things going on around us as if Facebook was somehow studying theology. But I think we have to recognize that when we do structure our study and when we do structure our day and discipline ourselves, as painful as it may be sometimes, there will be rich dividends for it because then we will be enabled to better proclaim the gospel that we have been sent to proclaim. We don't want to get stuck in some kind of a rut. Well, and that's what ends up happening is is we get stuck in a rut because we forget the one thing needful. And this isn't to like force some kind of spiritual experience on anyone, just to say that when you make a habit of studying the Bible and studying things around the Bible, you'll soon see how every other book is stale. Every other subject is stale compared to the study of the Word of God. If we don't realize that, And if we can't at least confess that or acknowledge that, then we have to begin questioning why we're doing this, why we are here, why we occupy this office. There are so many other things around us, though, that are tempting to the eye, tempting to the intellect, tempting to the flesh, that draws us away. It's not saying that recreation is sinful or saying that all media is necessarily sinful, all drama, all arts, whatever. Nevertheless, even if it's good art, even if it's art that you could not find fault with, if it begins to lead us away from our time in the Scripture, if it leads to our neglect of duties both in the parish and at home, it is something that we should probably remove. Cut your hand off, right? You know, Don't let anything cause you to, to stumble. And we don't like to hear that because we like our hobbies and we like our undisciplined lives. It's all part of beating back the old Adam. If we're going to say the old Adam should daily be drowned, then we ought to be holding him under the water a little bit, right? <laughs> if, if if we're really serious about that, it is something that we should struggle against. At least, you know, Paul in Romans 7 recognizes that war within us, but Paul actually wants to, to win it. 
Paul, Paul wants to overcome that. And of course, we understand that to be through the Holy Spirit. But hey, guess what? Where do we find the Holy Spirit? Where does the Holy Spirit work? In his word. So many pastors become absolutely burnt out because of the demands that the parish puts on them and the attacks of Satan and his demons and just the the pressure of living in this world. I understand that. Many pastors become dry, though, because they've capped the well and they've they've cut the rope <laughs> you know that holds the bucket and they've and they've walked away from that oasis they've become discouraged and they're only further discouraging themselves by stepping away from that word guys any final words on this before we head to break yeah i think that if something in your life whether it's your phone especially or anything else is disrupting a pattern of sustained attention, whether that's to what you're reading or to the person that you're visiting with, you need to get rid of that interruption. You need to turn it off or put it aside, put it out of the room, leave it in your car, wherever it is that it's just not going to interrupt you because you're you're created for sustained attention, uh, both in listening to God and in dealing with the people. When you devote that sustained attention, you have really rich rewards and you you simply lead a more fulfilling version of your own life than you do when you are constantly interrupted. So I I commend pat, setting a pattern to you and anything that is interrupting that pattern of attention is something that is going to prove harmful to you and 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 unsatisfactory and it's it's going to make you dry. So if you want to be refreshed. You you have to give the attention to God's word and to the people that both demand. All right. And with that, we'll be right back with more Word Fitly. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The Word, front and center, in doctrine, in history, in life. That's the mission of A Word Fitly Spoken. We've got more on the way. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. We are back. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills, Zelwyn Heidi, Adam Kuntz talking about the pastor's public life. Last segment, we entered into a discussion about how the pastor ought to lead an ordered life and just what that looks like. Now let's spend this final segment talking about what are some of the things that lead to a disordered life? What are these distractions that come to us? How can we avoid them? And how can we have a life that isn't chaos? And we're talking about this because in the section on public life or conduct, Leah discusses a wide variety of stuff, most of which is only vaguely applicable to a modern-day pastor because it concerns 
relationships with the state, the farm that comes with your parish, all this kind of stuff that really doesn't happen anymore or happens only to Zelwyn. So (laughs) what we want to talk about now is mostly about technology because we find that to be the same kind of conditioning factor in people's lives, comprehensive, constant that things like the state or rural social relationships are for Leia in 19th century Bavaria. So in talking about tech, we're talking not about technology necessarily as a tool. I think it's pretty obvious to anybody who is using, let's say, a plow instead of a digging stick or a horse harnessed to a cart instead of, say, a human back to move something, that technology in and of itself is just part of being human. But I think that at this point in time, technology, especially since the advent of the smartphone in 2007, I want to say, you guys can correct me on that, but it's been around for a little more than a decade. Technology is at the point of basically interrupting people's brains pretty much constantly. We're bringing this up in this specific case because the idea of constant interruption we believe to be inimical to the way that a pastor needs to function. I don't think you have to be a pastor to understand this. You certainly don't have to be a Christian to know that it's happening. You can look at any number of surveys of people reporting incredibly high rates of depression after using social media for sustained periods. I think at this point, there are even you know certain apps. I want to say maybe the YouTube app reminds you that you've been watching for a long time. Do you want to keep watching? I mean, and, it, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I think that people are pretty much aware that, that a lot of this is very bad for us. I think that's doubly true when, in the case of a pastor, you, your job is to pay attention and think deeply about things, which is seemingly impossible in, you know, 20 minute, 20 minute, 20 second segments of attention. But before I just, you know, launch into a further diatribe for another five minutes, what are your what are your guys' thoughts? <laughs> I think you make an excellent point because if the, the public life of a pastor, if only because it requires him to be in and among his people, if we're always being constantly interrupted, if we're always constantly focusing on what our little glowing rectangle is doing, or that fear of missing out on Facebook. We, we end up spending way more time on that often than we mean to, and we end up pushing out the what we need to be doing as a pastor called by God. And so, yes, this is a very real and a very live issue, something that we do have to, to contend with. I also think that the, the idea of the pastor as primarily interacting theologically via social media, you know, it, it has a kind of immediately obvious relevance to people. So we're not saying that social media in and of itself is horrendous and you just shouldn't use it or something. But I do think that something that we brought up in passing earlier about, you know, getting your theology from Facebook is a very real thing both for pastors and laity. And anecdotally I noticed that people have very different impressions of what Lutheranism is based on how they come to it. If they come to it via, you know, maybe primarily, let's say, books versus internet debates, they have, in my own personal experience, a vastly different set of questions than if they're primarily interacting with Lutheranism 
through the internet, right? Which doesn't mean reading nothing, but it means reading things of much lesser length. To give you an example, debates about the third use of the law and how that's preached and everything. Obviously, that's something that Lutherans have discussed on the internet a time or two. <laughs> or a hundred. But anyway. Uh, yeah, right. But some of those questions and issues are, are rather easily settled just in the case of Walther himself. If you not only read all of the law and gospel lectures, but also his actual preaching, which you can you can easily do in English these days. A lot of the questions that people have and points that they throw back and forth, he actually considers as options or, or thoughts or why don't we do this or why do we do that in the Law and Gospel lectures. You know, I'm not saying that he has answered every question anyone could ever have to everyone's satisfaction, but I am saying that it is notable if you spend a lot of time in books and especially older books, just the vast superficiality of what happens on the internet most of the time. And if that's conditioning how you think, that's going to make you theologically shallow, no matter how many buzzwords you know. Well, and it's, it's also served to erode the parish life, too, to where these pastors who have a presence on the internet, be them Lutheran or non-Lutheran, whatever, become kind of surrogate pastors to the audience, yep. to where no the, person is often, yep. yeah, the person is often not engaging in local parish life, but instead living in this kind of virtual existence as something of a group. Yeah. And that's not healthy. And it's an illusion. It's not real. Perceptions are very different between media personalities and an actual guy boots on the ground. We need to be careful about that kind of mindset. I mean, pastors, but but laymen too, as you come to this sort this sort of thing, it serves to divide the church too into camps. Things really become entrenched. It's much easier to talk in a belligerent way to people digitally than it is to do it face to face. I think that's why bullying might actually be worse today, because yeah. you can just say horrible things and never have to look anyone in the eye. Yeah. Not that there weren't horrible bullies in the past, but I, today it does seem a bit more vicious than it used to be. And it's made worse by the fact that people are so isolated and so insular. So basically what the digital world has done is, yeah, it, it's this great avenue for learning, even learning theology, if we do it right. But really what tends to happen is it's just this continued isolation and a fake sense of community, a false sense of what the church is. When God has made us so that we would live in an actual physical community and have actual communion with one another, that's really what we lose. And as the pastor further retreats into the into the digital cocoon, he too loses a grip on his family, loses a grip on the parish, a grip on himself, and his grip upon God. Yeah, one of the, the ironic things about something like social media, especially like with Facebook, is as I think you alluded to it a little bit earlier, Adam, loneliness and depression are actually on the rise as a result of it. This isn't something that's actually bringing us closer together. It's actually driving us further apart because now instead of interacting, say like at dinner with, you know, with your own family, you're just looking at Facebook, trying to get caught up on what is, on what is happening somewhere else that doesn't even really have any immediate relevance to what you're doing. Right. We, we won't need Skynet to destroy us. You know, nobody's going to have to come back in time and kill John Connor because our dependence upon technology is going to undo us. It's going to be our the destruction as a people. And we're already seeing that. 
We're ceasing to be human. We we won't need the two minute hate when we have the orgy porgy to make <laughs> reference to two important works on the subject, but <laughs> I think you see this in how people handle their own emotions in real life, which is you can tell that they're not they don't know how to smile at or interact with another person. Everything is kind of exaggerated because they're used to seeing, you know, YouTube unboxings where the person acts insanely excited to see something. This is why every other picture you see of a male on social media today has his mouth agape like a frightened chimpanzee. <laughs> I, I don't believe you're that excited. Every, everything is everything is exaggerated because nothing, you know, nothing is quite nothing is quite real. And it it does sometimes feel like a Blade Runner hellscape. I'm not gonna lie. And that's that's <laughs> that's the only pop culture reference I got for you guys tonight. Right. Fair enough. I bring one or maybe a half a reference to each episode. That's my goal. (laughs) (laughs) Because of the just vast amount of isolation, as you were saying, what that isolation does is that it disrupts natural patterns that are not only what you should be doing as a matter of, you know, imperative, they're also what is actually rewarding, you know, for you to be consciously distancing yourself from your family when you're with them by by being on social media or by not engaging in you know depth of reading because you you really you can't you're simply your brain is incapable of reading a 300 page book now because it's just conditioned not to reading anything very large you are slowly letting life slip away i mean anything that's actually real or sustained or rewarding that that's the point at which that technology is now hindering your life it's it's not helping you right i think that's pretty obvious in some ways because people have such unpleasant experiences on social media but the reason we're saying this explicitly is because we find that it's just stuff that people slip into you know i mean it wasn't the case 10 years ago that people said okay i have some free time this saturday i think what i'll do is I'll stay inside and I'll stare at my laptop for eight hours while binging on Netflix. You know, it used to be that if people binged on stuff, they were either playing video games for eight hours and that wasn't like normal, or they were like, I don't know, writing code or something. (laughs) Dungeons and Dragons, at least there's other people involved, right? Yeah, there you go, right? Right. even, Even Netflix, you could in theory watch with another human being. You could. You know, but I don't think it happens that way. And I think really, I mean, there's also a lot of things wrong about watching a movie on a screen the size of a phone. That's no way to consume art or what passes for art either. But that's neither here nor there. It's It's really amazing, though. This is kind of where they trick you. You think you're getting something good. And I'll give you this example. Blu-ray discs never really caught on, even though you can still get them. High definition, great picture. At the same time those are coming up, you see the rise of YouTube. And somehow, the corporate media has convinced us to spend hours and hours watching low-quality, low-resolution video and just become hypnotized by it. While there are actual better physical forms of media to consume, or at least better quality in that sense, just in a physical sense. And that tells us a lot, that you will eat what they tell you to eat, you will consume what they tell you to consume, and they're going to get from you anything that they want, your money, your time your brain, your metadata, anything else, 
you are being vampirized by these people, and ultimately, it's going. If we're not careful, it's going to cost us our souls. Even if you don't want to go that whole route, as as you are, Willie, and say <laughs> that it's some giant conspiracy. Which I mean, who knows? Maybe it's the, it is conspiracy. Ellen, no, that's the thing. It's not a conspiracy at all. Their aim is to get you to be glued to that. That's how they make their money. That's what they want. It's not a conspiracy at all. My point is, is that this isn't Orwell so much as it is Huxley. There you okay? go. It's not that we're forcing you to consume these low resolution movies. This is a case of we are doing it because we enjoy the way that it makes our brains feel. We enjoy the 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 reward pattern that's going on. Absolutely, as Adam said, the dopamine release do- that you get, the yeah. dopamine release. Yeah. So it's not so much like you know they're holding a gun to your head and saying watch YouTube as it is a fact that oh I I enjoyed that two minute video. Oh here's another one. Oh here's another <laughs> one. And suddenly it's been three hours. That's what's going on. See, just when you think there's a rift and word fitly spoken, we just agree loudly <laughs> and violently. <laughs> but. But but one thing that I I was thinking of with all of this, too, is like with pastors in particular, I think if we end up spending a great deal of time on the the church of Facebook, as it were, and interacting with like-minded people, it actually causes us to be disaffected with the people that we're actually called to serve. Yep. Yep. Because we end up wanting this perfectly catechized, this, you know, perfectly Lutheran in all things kind of people that we don't see in our own parish. And instead of working to fix that situation, you know, actually striving harder to do something about it, we just kind of get onto Facebook and we vent about it. And we say, oh, woe is me kind of a thing. Well, you know, that's a that's a that's very well said. It, it's like we go on there and we say, aha, here's this other guy who his theology is 100% perfect and his presentation is perfect. And we kind of start to idolize these groups and these these little kind of sectarian factions that exist on social media. And it's likened to the airbrushed model that you're lusting after instead of your wife at home. You know, but again, the airbrushed lady isn't real. It's not representative of, of what the reality is. And ultimately, though, life at home ought to be better and can be better, you know, insofar as we have the proper perspective on everything. But we're easily wooed away, easily easily hypnotized by these things. Yeah, and I, I think that seeing a lot of modern life as a kind of a provision of a simulation that feels better, looks better, sounds better, and is certainly easier to deal with because you just have to consume it rather than dealing with what you actually have, the family you actually have, the parish you actually have. That is should definitely be understood as what is easy. It is easy to slip into the simulation provided to you. And that's why we've talked about things like discipline and, and having a pattern to your day. Because basically, unless you're pushing against the provision of easy simulations, that is what w- your life will be. You will live it mostly online. You will live it as a consumer rather than a producer. As a pastor, most of all, you're you're actually called to be a producer. You you're producing content, as it were. You will be consuming whatever you're given. Now, I think you know. I think <laughs> I think that what sounded you know maybe like like you know maybe Willie was crinkling the tinfoil a little bit, but that's just the way it sounded. 
I think that that what that was about was not at all some kind of nebulous conspiracy. It is the way the world works. You are being marketed to constantly. And especially when it appears that something is free, that means that you are the product. That's that's why he was talking about your metadata, because that's what's that's what they are consuming when you are, quote, getting something for free. All of that is to say that you're not different from anyone else just because you're a pastor. It's just that when you slip into a poorly disciplined life of consumptive simulations, the consequences are all the higher and all the worse because you are someone that other people are actually supposed to be listening to. See, Adam's my PR guy. <laughs> well, and, and to be fair with all of this, I'm not denying. I, well, I just don't are... want Willie to get shut off, shut down from Facebook or something. You know what I'm saying? So, <laughs> no, no, I, I totally off Twitter. Right? Yeah. I didn't mention. I didn't mention frogs once. <laughs> right. <laughs> Zellin, cue up the honk side effect sound effect, please. <laughs> honk, honk. Yeah, exactly. I did. To be fair, I'm not denying that there are companies out there that are using you as their product. My point is simply that. If we are falling into these simulations, as you say, Adam, if we are falling into this easy way of just kind of going with it, we can't always just say it's the, you know, YouTube made me do it. No, no, it's it's not like, I mean, look, in a lot of ways, there are malevolent forces pulling the strings on everything that runs in the world. But we are very much enablers, okay, because we do consume it voluntarily. Right. Even though we're eventually rewired, it, you know, you, there's still in addiction, there, there is still blame upon the addict, too. Right. Exactly. You know, I mean, we still go after the pusher, but at the same time, you do have to deal with the person taking the drug. And that's how we argue on Word Fitly. <laughs> All right, guys, we need to wrap it up. Any, any final words here? Aldous Huxley was a prophet, I guess, are the final words. <laughs> you know, I, no, that's, that's really right. I mean, a, a lot of people bring up George Orwell, but I mean, Huxley is the one who predicted what it would actually be like. It's like reading a documentary of twenty nine of the current year. <laughs> right. right. But I, I mean, I, I, guess, I guess final words would, would simply be that once, once you realize that this is the way it goes or that these are your... These are your bad habits. These are your patterns of life that are not conducive to anything good or wholesome. You also know a better way. And that, that way is modeled for you in scripture. You're not, you're not locked into just consuming whatever feed is pushed in front of your face. You can, you can have better things. You can pursue a more excellent way. In Christ, that's yours. So one thing that we're trying to do with this is to, to give you the option of an upward calling, the option of uh, going somewhere better and different with your life because you've been called in Christ to what is most excellent. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. Ironically, if you want to know more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly, but not too much. I'm Willie Grills here with Zoe and Heidi and Adam Kuntz. God love you and God bless. Whoever has to give constantly needs always to have something to give, and since he cannot draw forth anything out of himself, he always has to be at the source in order to draw something forth. Many a truth, once you have it, grows on its own, even through life itself. 
but its development is rich in a double and threefold way, if life is quiet and public, inward and outward at the same time. The divine word and the theological sciences can grant quiet studying that is far from false knowledge, which estranges one from the office and makes one unfit for it. True knowledge all the more prepares the pastor for the office, empowers, strengthens, and gives a foundation. It will assist his experience, clarify it, and enlighten it, opening up for him continually new vistas into the glory of the one truth that is being preached.